Well, good morning, church. And it is a great, great joy to be with you this morning. Uh, church that we called home for many years and that really set a foundation in my family's life for what uh, we should be as the church. And really, uh, somewhere in God's providence, used North Wake as a seed in our lives to move our family to Portland, Oregon, uh, like Noah was saying. So typically when we tell people Portland, the first question is, why Portland, Oregon? And the short answer to that is because we're crazy. But a little more uh, of an answer to that is because we've, our family felt like God was giving us a burden uh, to go to a place that was unreached or, or that was uh, less reached than what we were familiar with, the southeast. And so Portland kind of fits that bill. A uh, city of a little over 2.5 million people, 2.6 million people. And within the urban core of the city, which is uh, where we want to plant down in the southeastern part of Portland, there are five uh, Southern Baptist churches there, and all of those are less than 10 years old. And there's about one church for every 27,000 people there. Uh, so you go into Portland, and uh, you'll quickly find that it is uh, a city that cares nothing about Jesus. Uh, and our hearts go towards those people. And the more that we prayed about it... Uh, and the more God just gave us the compassion for the people of the city of Portland. And so we are, uh, we are incredibly uh, ready to be in the city, to share the hope of Jesus with the people that need to hear that there is a rest available for them. And that's exactly what we're digging into this morning in Hebrews chapter 4, is a promised rest, an opportunity for people to cease their works and to rest in the good news of Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross, his death, burial, and his resurrection. And so church, we gather today to worship that great God, to remind ourselves of his goodness. And as we do that, I know that you have been on a little bit of a break from Hebrews with the Easter season. And so what I thought might be helpful for us this morning is just to show the first half of the Bible Project video that you saw as the series started. And so if you would turn your attention to the screen, and this will kind of get our minds kind of geared up for Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. The letter to the Hebrews. The author of this letter is anonymous, and people have wondered for a long time whether Paul wrote it or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos, but really we just don't know. In chapter 2, we discover that the author had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Jesus, so we know that this letter is anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We also don't know who the audience of this letter was or even where they lived. The author knows them really well, and he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the storyline of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, about how Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, about how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received the Torah and they made a covenant with God where they built the tabernacle, where the priests offered sacrifices, and also about how they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The author just expects that the readers know all of the details about these stories. And so most likely the audience is made up of Jewish Christians. That's where the name of the letter comes from. We also have clues from chapter 10 that this church community was facing persecution and even imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. Some in the community were walking away from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. And this explains the purpose and the structure of this letter. 
First, there's a short introduction, which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people and events from Israel's history. Jesus is first compared with angels in the Torah, second with Moses and the Promised Land, third with priests and Melchizedek, and lastly with the sacrifices and the covenant. And the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing that Jesus is worthy of all their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this, it's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to abandon Jesus. So let's dive in now and see how this all unfolds. The elevation of Jesus begins in the opening sentence of the introduction. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So the author is saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself to Israel. He then makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. These metaphors are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the Son. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd, like why angels? In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. If Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels, how remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die? In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. In chapters 3 and 4, the author moves on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses, who led the people of Israel through the wilderness and built the tabernacle. Jesus is also the leader of God's people, but in him we see not the builder of just a tent, but of all creation. Then the author retells the story of how the Israelites rebelled against Moses in the wilderness, and they lost their chance to enter into the rest that God offered them in the promised land. And so here comes the second warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? We also are in a wilderness-like environment where we have to trust God for the future rest in God's new creation. So let's make sure that we don't rebel like Israel did in the wilderness and lose out on God's gracious offer to enter his new creation. So this morning, uh, that's what we'll find in Hebrews chapter 4 is exactly what the, the video was saying there, that we're going to continue to elevate Jesus and specifically here we'll see that he's greater than two guys, David and Joshua of the Old Testament. And then the warning is going to be issued out over and over again to not miss this promised rest. Don't look past the promised rest that God has for his people, for his church. 
So Hebrews chapter 4, you can read along with me, beginning in verse 1. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So, there then, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let us pray. Father God, this is your word. I pray now that it would go forward, that it would drive down into our hearts and our minds, that we would honor and exalt you today, and that you would change us and shape us to become more like your son, Jesus. We commit to praise you for all that you will give. We are so blessed for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, consider with me Susie Favor Hamilton. She was known in the late 1990s and the first few years of this century as the best American woman middle distance runner. Hamilton, you may be familiar with her, she ran in three Olympics, the latest being the 2000 Sydney Games, where, if you remember, she mysteriously collapsed on the track once it was apparent that she wasn't going to win the race. That would signal the end of Hamilton's racing career. Uh, She's been in the spotlight for many different things, some good, some bad. Uh, But the one I want to draw your attention to this morning is a race that she ran back in 1990. As the LA Times would report, Seattle, Washington, after three laps around the Husky Stadium track, U.S. middle distance runner Susie Favor simply lost track. She lost track of the finish line. She lost track of just how the race was being run. And she lost track of any chance at a medal in the women's 1,500 meters Wednesday. Favor, then 21 years old, a senior at the University of Wisconsin and the current NCAA and U.S. champion at 1,500 meters, failed to start her kick soon enough. She would finish fourth out of the medals in 4.11.45, two seconds behind gold medalist Natalia Artemova of the Soviet Union. She was quoted as saying, I honestly just didn't know the finish line was there. I was a little bit disoriented at the start of the race, and I thought that I had one more lap to go. I knew the Soviets had a plan, and I stayed back in the middle of the pack and wanted to go with the Russians as they went. And as they started to take off, I thought, this is really becoming some race. 
I knew something was happening. I just wasn't prepared for it to be the end. As Favor turned down the back stretch for the final time, she looked up at the clock and it read four minutes. By that time, it was too late. It was a fatal mistake, the reporter goes on to say. After three laps in a race that was run in what should have been in her favor, the pace was a slow one. Artemova and her teammate finished 1-2 and followed by Patty Sue Plumer of the United States. And just before the kick began, Favor is quoted as saying, I heard the bell signaling once, uh, one lap to go, but a bell just didn't go off in my mind. As we consider the text this morning, I feel like that is the author's intent for the people, for his hearers, for his listeners, and for our church, for us this morning, to not ignore the bell going off in our minds. If we hear the word of God, then let it take root. Let it do its good work of showing us who God is, showing us our great need for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and pressing into the truth that the rest can be ours if we're resting in him. I just wasn't prepared for it to be the end. What a tragic statement by Hamilton at the end of that race. Well, beginning in verse 1, it says, While the promise of entering his rest still stands. So right off of the, the bat, we see there is a, an encouragement here. The rest is still open. There's still an available rest. And it, I can imagine this would have been a breath of relief for the church during those days. As we saw in the video, they were facing persecution. Many of them were being persecuted for their faith. They were maybe being stripped away from their families, their jobs, their ways of making a living. And I'm certain that some of them probably at least would have wondered, is it even worth following Jesus? Is, is it worth the persecution? Is it worth the trial? And then secondly, have we really been passed up on God's promise? I mean, he says that there's good for those who follow him and that there's a rest coming. Have we maybe missed it? And so as the audience would have been listening to this letter, I'm certain there's just this, the rest is still there. It's still available. But not only is there a great encouragement that the rest is still there, but we also see a great warning that the rest may be passed up. He says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, oftentimes when we hear the word fear, we think of it as like a negative thing. We want to stay away from fear, right? I have three boys and a, and a girl, and I, I teach them, man, don't be afraid. My boys right now at springtime, don't be afraid of going outside and the, and the bees and the, you know, the stinging insects are flying around, right? Don't be afraid to get your, your knees of your pants dirty when you play soccer or when you play baseball. Press into those things. And a lot of times we can, we can think of fear in that way. But there's also a really healthy fear as well. It's not just something to be avoided. There's actually a healthy fear to press into. And the author here is saying there is, a such, there is such a, a fear that would actually help us press towards the things of God. The fear that we might would miss his promised rest. As I studied through this passage, John Piper was incredibly helpful for me in this. 
in addition to him saying this is one of the most difficult texts in Scripture, which was not encouraging, he also went on to say in regards to this fear, he said, so what is his conclusion from the fact Israel was not able to enter God's rest because of unbelief? His conclusion is that we should fear. And then he goes on to teach about that fear and the fear of unbelief. And he says, the connection with verse 19 in chapter 3 surely tells us the thing we are to fear is unbelief. Therefore, fear that unbelief because that's what will keep you from entering God's rest, God's haven of salvation and God's heaven. Fear unbelief. Fear not trusting God. The author here is painting this picture of comparison as we look into these first couple of verses He's showing that, yes, there is a rest available, but yes, there is a whole group of people who failed to obtain that rest. They missed it. As he said in verse 2, the good news came to us just as it came to the Israelites in times past, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They heard the message but it didn't benefit them. They heard the words, but it was not good because they did not couple it with faith. Imagine, uh, just imagine with me all the things that the Israelites, specifically the group of Israelites that went through the wilderness, got to see of God. As they marched through the desert, they saw God miraculously provide for them and showing them where to go through the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. As their throats grew dry and thirsty. He miraculously gave them water to drink. As their stomachs growled with hunger, he gave them food, bread in the mornings, and meat in the evenings. He gave their bodies food. But in all of this, they would miss the living water, and they would miss the bread of life. They saw the physical manifestations. They saw the actual provisions of God himself And yet they still do not enter the promised rest. They had God's good news, but it did not benefit them. As a result, an entire generation of people would miss the rest. As the author goes on to remind us in verse 3, we who have believed entered that rest, But then he quotes Psalm 95, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And again in verse 5, they shall not enter my rest. This group of people did not go into the promised land. The author's echoing over and over again, warning, warning, warning. There is an opportunity for this rest to be missed. Several months ago, uh, leading up to Christmas, actually, my family, we had this incredible run of sicknesses in our home. And uh, we have a big family. And so typically what happens whenever the first person gets sick, it's like every man for himself, right? Get out of Dodge. Don't get sick. Uh, But in that time, man, I thought, I need to go to the drugstore and get every possible thing I can find to give to my son who had the flu and strep throat. And we just had this whole just mess of things. And so I I go to the drugstore and I I buy up the Tamiflu and I get the cough syrup and the things for strep throat. And in in those medicines, you've all all have taken these types of things before. On the back of those is a warning label, right? 
And then warning goes something like this. You know, warning may cause dizziness or, you know, may cause dry throat or dry mouth or whatever the, the thing may be. But we still take the medicine because chances are it, we're going to be fine. Chances are, you know, 98% of the, of the time, the Tamiflu is going to help, the flu is going to get over, we're going to be better. But what if we were to go to the store and we were to buy a bottle of Advil and we were to look on the back of it and it would say, warning, may cause internal bleeding, extreme headaches, cramps, occasional loss of limb, maybe even death. You know, we would probably put the Advil back on the shelf and not buy it, right? Especially if it said, there's a 98% chance that it will do this to you. There's a 2% chance that it'll heal your headache, 98% chance that you're not going to make it out of this alive. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. The author's saying, look, there was a big, an entire generation of people who saw God's goodness. And they missed the rest. They did not put their hope and their trust in him. And so church, there's a chance. There's a chance that people can hear the voice of God, the good news of Jesus, and miss the rest. So what he's going to do with the rest of this passage He's going to begin to show us this rest. And in showing us this rest, there's going to be that underlying theme of the warning. But then he's going to show us just how good the rest is and what exactly the rest even is as it draws in people to God himself. So he begins again. In verse 3, for those who have believed enter the rest, but as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter the rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4, for somewhere he has spoken of the seventh day in this way, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Genesis 2.2 is a direct quote. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his works he has done. So the first thing I want to show is is that this is a divine rest. This is is a rest that's coming from God himself. Look back in verse 1. It says there's a promise of entering his rest. And then in the quote that I've already said a couple of times, referring back to Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest in verse 3. And again in verse 5, they shall not enter my rest. You see the, the personal pronoun going with the word rest. It is God's rest, a divine rest. Kent Hughes is incredibly helpful for us in understanding just what this means to have a rest offered to us from the great God, the divinity himself. When he says this, his purpose is not to imply that his readers will not enter the rest, but rather to show that God calls the rest being offered my rest, because it is the rest he himself enjoys. This in itself is a stupendous revelation. It means that when we are given rest by him, it is not simply a relaxation of tensions, but a rest that is qualitatively the same rest God enjoys, his personal rest that he shares with us. Then he gives this great illustration. To catch something of the idea here, imagine yourself invited by Prince Charles to enjoy his rest. You're picked up 
by the royal limo at Heathrow and whisked into London and through the gates of Windsor Palace where you are shown its glories. Then the two of you motor north in his 1968 Aston Martin to Balmoral Castle where you relax before the fire. You scratch the ears of the royal hound. You don a kilt and explore the royal trout streams. You're sharing what Prince Charles calls my rest, his personal rest. The sublime fact that we share God's personal rest, the rest he enjoys, ought to send our hearts racing. It is a divine rest. But secondly, it's a rest that is still available. It's a rest that still stands. It was not closed off to the Israelites back in the Old Testament. It's still available today. In verse 6, he says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today. Saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This rest is still available. Five times now, in two chapters, he's referred back to Psalm 95, warning us, don't miss this. Don't harden your hearts. There's a wrath that is very real. People will not enter my rest if they're not resting in me. The rest is offered today. But then there's one more step with this rest. It is a divine rest and it is still available today. But secondly, uh, but thirdly, excuse me, is that this rest goes beyond just stepping into taking a breath and like Hughes would say, plopping down on the couch and releasing the tension of a, a long day's work. This rest is actually found in the person of Jesus Christ Look with me at verse 8. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. If you're keen on your Old Testament history, you would think, yeah, of course, uh, there was a group of people that did enter the promised land, but Joshua and a few other guys did get to go into the rest. But here the author makes a little turn. He says, that's not even the rest I'm talking about. It's something much, much better And Hughes, again, would be helpful in this when he says the words for Joshua and Jesus are exactly the same in the Greek. Jesus was named after Joshua. The Old Testament Jesus had led his followers to the land of Canaan. But that was not the real rest, but only a type. And that is why the real rest was offered by David in his today and now to us in our today. So the great truth is, there was a Jesus, the son of none, who failed to lead his people to true rest. But now, there's another Jesus, son of God, who can. He is the pioneer and captain of our salvation, the ultimate Joshua. That, my friends, is the beauty of the gospel. There was a a Jesus who could not take the people to the promised land, but God didn't leave us with that guy in the Old Testament, they, he gave us his son, the true Jesus, the son of God, to allow us to enter into his rest. So as we hold in tension, and part of, the, of what makes this passage a little difficult is how do we rest and yet also work 
towards rest, right? Our, our faith isn't passive, but we're resting in the finished work of Jesus. But there is also a striving to be done as well. As we look at the last section for this morning, verses 11 through 13, it says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And every creature, or excuse me, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so yes, there is a rest to have, but there is a work to be done as well. We strive towards that rest. Don't be like Susie Hamilton, who was, you know, casually pacing herself around the finish lap of the race. We should be striving towards God and his goodness. And I think there are two ways that this text will point out for us to do that. First of all, it's actually found back in chapter 3. Y'all talked through this a few weeks ago. But in chapter 3, verse 12, the author says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. So first of all, I think we enter this rest, the way we strive towards it is we surround ourselves with other believers who would exhort us, who would encourage us in God, his word, his truth, his promises. We need people who are going to walk with us. I know for myself, as we move to Portland, I have a, a team that's moving with us, and, and myself and the, the other co-pastor, Patrick, I mean, we need each other. I shouldn't go out there and do that work on my own. In church, you need each other to encourage you to strive towards God's rest. And secondly, the way that even works is by the last couple of verses that I read. It's by God's good word. His word is living. His word is active. His word is what's going to be able to penetrate our hearts, to cut away the hardness, to reveal in us the sin that is deceptive, that we would maybe be blind to. His word is going to do its work. In Romans 10, 17, a pretty famous passage says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And so as we look at his word today, my plead with you, my encouragement to you, is the same as what the author's been saying all along. Today, if you hear his voice, if you see his word, if he's calling you out, don't neglect it. Let his word do its work. It is active and living, sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces our souls, not to bring death, but to bring the exact opposite, to bring life. And so as we consider the rest of God this morning, church, I want to encourage us to rest in the finished work of Jesus. Yes, we should do that every day. 
but to work at resting in the finished work of Jesus. We can be so quick to move from trusting in God to believing in ourselves. And so would we do the hard work, but the good work of surrounding ourselves as a body of believers, digging into God's word, and letting his word bring life into our souls. Let's pray together. God, your word is good. And we are so grateful for it. Father, thank you this morning for being a God who is on your throne and worthy of all of our worship. And I pray this morning, God, that your word would do its work in my heart and in our hearts that we might receive the good promise of rest that you have for us by resting in the work of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. you stand with us let's corporately confess